this morning, we are continuing in a series that we took a little mini break from last week called Dressed for Success. And over recent weeks, we've been basing this on a few verses from the book of Colossians, chapter 3. And I'm going to encourage you and invite you to join me now in looking at what these few verses say, and we're going to unpack it a little bit more. The words that, um, that I'm about to read from the Bible will appear on the screen, or if you've got your own version, you can turn, turn with me to Colossians 3, verses 12 onwards, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And it says this, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness and patience. That's your wardrobe. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace and always be thankful. Let me just summarize what you can access online from the previous five weeks of this series. And that is, just as you this morning stood in front of your wardrobe or your rail or your drawers and you decided what you were going to wear and can I compliment you on the choices that you made? You're looking good this morning. But as you stood and you made those physical choices that the Bible exhorts us that every day we are to clothe ourselves with a new wardrobe that is available to people who follow Jesus. It's a heavenly wardrobe and in that wardrobe that we've looked at some so far, there's tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience that we clothe ourselves with. We looked at what we wear. It projects something to the world around us. It also persuades us, and it transforms us. This week's item of clothing that I'm going to talk about for these next few minutes is absolutely critical. I want you to hear this really clearly, this is such an important item of clothing, and I want you to hear it really well. Because this morning, I want to share with you about wearing an unoffendable heart. There are two things that I guarantee you in life. They're not good things, but I guarantee they'll be part of your life. The first one is this. People will fail you, and you will fail people. No amens to that. Who knows that's true? People will fail you. I don't think we should get excited about it necessarily, but I think it's a fact. People will fail us, and we will fail people. The second guarantee is this. People will offend you, and you will offend people. 
Those are absolutely cast iron guarantees about living in a fallen world and being among fallen people. We will fail, we will be failed, we will offend, and we will be offended. So can I ask you a question? If we all agree that that is part of the narrative of life, can I ask you a question? Why are we so surprised when people mess up? Why are we shocked? Why does it seem to come like a curveball to us? Why does it floor us sometimes when people make mistakes and get it wrong? Let me tell you why. We elevate people in our own imaginations to be superhuman. We put a cape on them in our imaginations. We imagine them wearing their Superman underpants over their trousers. And we sort of think they have it all together. And then when we find out they don't, I have to say there's quite an elevation at times of leaders in churches. And there's a sense of creating superheroes out of church leaders. And I want you to know you have a unsuper pastor here. You have someone who is normal like you, that fails and get it wrong, gets it wrong like you, that is offended, that offends, that fails, is failed. You have someone involved in leading this church, as everyone else on the team is, that we're not superhuman. And so if I disappoint you and fail you, I want you to know that it's because that's what we do. We don't like it. We wish it wasn't the case. But isn't it true? And so our disillusionment comes when people seem to fall short of what our expectations are. I looked online about what are the, some of the most common failures among people who are unsuccessful in life. And I'm just going to pick out the top 10 failure points that people have in their life. And I wonder if you can recognize anything in your own life from this list. If you can't, but you recognize them and everybody sat around you, then there might be something you need to look a little bit more inward about. Firstly, unsuccessful people, they procrastinate. They put off to tomorrow what could be done today. Any amens, any people do that. It says that secondly, they're not resolute. They're people who give up. They're people that move on quickly rather than face the embarrassment of failure. Thirdly, they think and they talk negatively. Fourthly, they daydream a lot, but they don't do a lot. Fifthly, they don't admit to their flaws. Is there anyone here who doesn't admit to their flaws? Well done, we saw the moment when they admitted for the first time. <laughs> Sixthly, they have poor relationships with people. Seventhly, they don't take care of themselves. Eight, they spend time with the wrong people. The Bible has a lot to say about that. Nine, they don't take risks in life. And ten, they never appreciate other people. Do you see anything of yourself in there? I'm sure there's at least one or two that you reflect and you see present in your life. And I'm sure you have been the victim of other people that have expressed and demonstrated those failures around you. The reality is... We will fail and people will fail us. We will offend and people will offend us. 
So I want to ask the question, if this is a guarantee about failure, if these things we see present, if none of us are superheroes, then why, why do we get dressed in such unforgiving, tight-fitting clothes? I don't know if you've ever done this, where maybe it's your favorite pair of trousers or your favorite shirt or your favorite dress, and you're going out to a restaurant and you just about manage to squeeze into it. But you're committed because it's your favorite and you just can get away with it. And you think, I can just about do this. And then you go for your meal and you haven't allowed for what will be. <laughs> Under the table, a button gets undone just to create a little bit more space. You know, the writer, this chapter 3, Colossians, says, make allowances. I guarantee you, within your average day, there will be experiences where people fail you or you fail others. We shouldn't wear clothes of perfection, but we should wear loose clothes that make allowances for that which is going to happen. Wear clothes that predict your day. You will experience faults. Allow for them. Let me show you how Jesus made allowances for failure in an example of someone that hadn't yet failed, but Jesus said, you're going to fail, and my grace is sufficient for you. In Matthew 26, verse 34, Jesus replied to Peter, and he says, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You will deny three times that you even know me. That was incredible, wasn't it? That this wasn't just forgiving something that had happened, but forgiving something and showing a grace, wearing clothes that make allowances for something that was yet to happen. If I can encourage you, church, to get rid of your tight-fitting, perfection-hugging expectations, carry a large cloak with you that you can throw over the faults of others. A number of years ago, I had a privilege of writing a book. I think I've got other books in me, and I'm looking forward. I enjoy writing. But I remember this process of having this book published, that it got sent to the publishers, and they had a number of people look over it, and there were some people called proofreaders. If you know a proofreader in your life, aren't they a great blessing? If you're writing something, like when I write a, a letter or an email or an important document, I usually run it past a few people who are really good proofreaders. Diana, over there on camera, one of our elders, she's a brilliant proofreader. Gosh, she'll pick up the, the most obscure apostrophes, and she's brilliant. And I love it, because it's just like, I want this document to be a good reflection. Tell me what's wrong with it. Other people involved in that editorial process are people who try to make sure the context is right, and it's understandable. Because when you're the writer, you know what you're trying to say, but when the reader is reading it, they may not know what you're trying to say unless you've explained it well. And an editor is able to look and say, this doesn't quite make sense. 
in a way that the writer can't do because the writer knows what they mean. And so they're a really important part of the process. But I find that there's a propensity that we can have in life to become like life proofreaders of other people. Sometimes, and I've got a bit of a love-hate relationship with um, social media. I think it's a great opportunity in many ways, but I also, sometimes I switch on my Twitter feed and it feels like people only go on there to disagree with others. You mean read the most innocuous sort of tweet that someone puts up and everyone piles in and say, what's wrong with it? And it feels a bit like there is a spirit of the age that we're in where everybody's a proofreader. Everybody's trying to correct everybody. Everybody's trying to point out what's wrong with our lives. Everybody's trying to highlight where we failed. And I want you to know that we're not called to be lifestyle proofreaders. And it, it's true that just in the same way that an editor can read something the author has written and see things that the author can't, that Jesus put it this way, that we should remove the plank in our own eye before removing the speck in someone else's. Because we do find it often easier to notice the speck than we do to notice our own planks. Because we understand our hearts. Someone I used to um, go and see who did leadership coaching with me, she said, we always want to judge people by their actions, but we always want people to judge us by our hearts. And so the author of our story and of our lives, we know what we mean. We know we didn't mean it, but everyone else just looks at the actions and says, failure, failure, failure. And that's why Jesus said, take great care of the plank in your own eye before picking up the speck. We'll pick that up in a moment. But the writer to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4 said something similar to what he said right into the church at Colossae. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 says these words. Always be humble and gentle. It's a very important first word there, always. Be patient with each other. Making allowances for each other's faults. You see the same theme coming through here? Get rid of the tight-fitting trousers. You're going to experience failure. Wear some loose clothing in order to be able to make allowances for that you're going to encounter. Don't turn up a church and say, oh, so you won't believe what someone said. Stop wearing those tight-fitting trousers. I'm not wanting to lower our vision here, but we should come to church and expect that someone will say something that will hurt us and offend us. Did I say that? That's what the writer's saying. We need to make allowances for these things. They will happen. Back to in Ephesians 4, make an allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit. And I see there's a spirit of the age that is making every effort to divide, every effort to bring separation, every effort to break people into groups and tribes, to divide and conquer. But it says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Humility, gentleness, and patience become a means of making allowances for each other's faults. Now, this applies to today, 
and it applies to our tomorrows. But I want to pose something to you this morning, and that is that it also applies to your yesterdays. Now, there are some people in life who try to revise history. They try to rewrite with hindsight. And of course, there are some things about history that you can't change. You can't change the facts of what happened. You can't change the timelines. You can't change who took part in that. You can't change a mistake was a mistake. But I do believe that there are people here today are watching online that there needs to be a revision of history, not in terms of what happened, but in terms of wearing looser clothing about the past. Because there are people in your past that your imagination and your understanding, your hopes, your expectations says, they should have been superheroes to me. But they weren't, they failed. And you've been carrying that tight-fitting expectation that's resulted in an incessant sense of disappointment and hurt and failure. And I'm not encouraging you to rewrite the incidents or minimize its impact, but to make allowances for the failure. But you might say, Mark, you very conveniently quoted a few early verses from Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to pick you up on this, Mark, because the bit that you picked up was in keeping with the tone of what you've shared this so far about making allowances for faults. But if you go forward a few verses, Mark, there's a verse that you're conveniently missing out. Let me take you to the verse I think you might be referring to. It's verse 15 of chapter 4 in Ephesians. It says, we will speak the truth in love. There you are. That's the proofreader's mandate. We're going to go around, point every apostrophe, every misspelt word, every failure. That's what we're going to do. We're going to go around and we're going to highlight those things. I'm going to be a proofreader. And the Bible gives me a mandate to do it. It says I can speak the truth in love. If someone comes up to you and they have a go at you and they say, I want to say it in love though. I'm not sure that's what that means. I think beating someone up and then saying I've done it out of love is not quite what the writer is referring to here. You see, the reference to speaking the truth in love comes after the references to being gentle and kind and patient and overlooking and being accommodating. It comes after that in exactly the same way that when we describe Jesus coming to the earth, it says he came full of grace and truth. There's an importance to the order. He didn't come full of truth and grace. He came full of grace and truth. And grace loves and embraces and cares and absolutely longs for the restoration of the person. And then truth on the back of that. It's important that we get that order right. Because I think for years, it's been all too easy for us in the church to be full of truth and say, but we'll do it out of grace. No, wrong way around. Full of grace and truth. Gentleness, kindness, patience. Speak the truth in love. Failure to make allowances clothes others in our expectations of them. It says, we want you to wear this. 
No, no, you're wearing the wrong stuff in life. You're making the wrong decisions. You're doing the wrong things. We want you to wear what we're saying you should wear. But love doesn't want other people to be clothed in our preferences. Love wants them to be clothed in God's best. Speaking the truth in love is not about what offends us. It's about what's good for them. It's a way of help. It's a way of care. It's a way of demonstrating that. Speaking the truth in love is not proofreading someone's faults. It is not condescending their actions or their attitudes. Speaking the truth in love is not taking the higher ground in your life because you remember there's a plank. Let me tell you what speaking the truth in love is. It's caring. If I stood on this stage right now and my zip is undone, don't look. It's not. I checked. But if it was, I wouldn't want to go through this whole service with no one telling me my zip was undone. And then I watch it back on Facebook later on and think, why did no one tell me? Because that's not a very kind thing to do, is it? But I don't want one of you standing up on your chair and saying, Mark, your zip is undone. Because that would be a little bit embarrassing, wouldn't it? Maybe you think about a way that you can do it kindly. Get a bit of paper, discreetly hold it up, check your zip. Because you don't just... You don't just want to point out the problem. You want to help the person with dignity, with care. You don't want them to feel embarrassed because you love them. And that's what's motivating your actions. Speaking the truth in love is caring. Speaking the truth in love guards their value and their dignity. Speaking the truth in love encourages the best version of them. Why do we equate speaking the truth in love by talking about people's failures or weakness or problems? At the moment, many of us are doing a Bible series called Truths of Our Identity or Who We Are in Christ. There's a lot of things that we are in Christ that we don't live out the realities of. And this has been a brilliant little Bible study series that we're doing each day um, on our Version reading plan that's just helped us to be reminded of who we are. But why can't speaking the truth in love be about telling people who they can be? Who God's made them to be. Don't say, you're a failure. You're defeated. Why don't you say, and God says you can be more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. Call out the prophetic. Why does speaking the truth in love always have to be negative? Why always be about the faults? Why can't it be about prophesying into their potential, about speaking the hope and the life of God over them? That's an exciting church to be a part of, isn't it? Where we make allowances for one another's failures and we don't take offense, but we speak life into them and we speak joy into them and we speak the possibilities of their future into their life. I'd love to be part of a community like that, wouldn't you? I think there's a lot of people who would. There's some questions to ask before you speak the truth in love to someone. Jesus, speaking in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 2, he says these really sobering words. 
These really are really sobering. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. So all of those tight-fitting clothes, does that mean that God's going to take on tight-fitting clothes according to the tightness they are on you and use the same measuring stick against us? I want to encourage you, before you speak the truth, ask yourself a few questions. Question one. If I was in the shoes of the person I'm going to talk to, would I appreciate being approached in the same way that I plan to approach them? And if the answer is no, don't speak to them about that issue until you resolve that. And you might need to get some counsel and some guidance and some wisdom about how you can change that. But don't speak to them in a way that you wouldn't like to be spoken to. Secondly, am I speaking from my own personal offense or my hurt or my disillusionment? Or am I speaking out of a prophetic conviction that there is more greatness that they can step into? Thirdly, am I guarding their dignity and making positive change in their life more likely or less likely? I believe those are really important questions before we step into someone else's world to help them to step into the things God has for them. But in conclusion this morning, before we share communion together, let me pick up one of the final bits of this clothing of making allowance that the writer touches on because he talks about forgiving others, forgiving anyone. C.S. Lewis said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And in these next few moments, I want to expose a forgiveness poverty that can be prevalent in our lives that robs us and robs other people of an abundance of wealth that God has designed for us. Let me explain it like this. Imagine your life is like a bank account. Every time somebody offends you, injures you, hurts you, they withdraw some money out of your account and they take it from you. You may not mind too much the odd withdrawal of the odd five pound note and you might just let it go and think, oh, it's okay, I can manage. But there are some incidents that happen that feel like they empty the account, don't they? And they take everything. They injure us so deeply that they, we feel impoverished. That they have taken the very lifeblood out of us. Or it could be that those small, frequent withdrawals begin to build up and we notice the value of our life being eroded. 
And so, when someone says you should forgive, we think, I've got nothing. I feel so empty. I feel so destroyed. I feel so barren. I have nothing to give from. That is forgiveness poverty. Peter asked Jesus a question, the one that Jesus predicted would deny him three times. And Jesus made allowances for. But he asked a question in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. He said, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? And then he thought he was making a really spiritual claim. He said, seven times? If they come to the cash point of my life and they keep withdrawing, time one, time two, time three, should I keep forgiving them up to seven times? Seven's a good righteous number, Lord. And Jesus answered. Lean into this answer. It's really important. Jesus answered. He said, no, not seven times, Peter, but 70 times seven. He wasn't set in a mathematical formula there that we make a spreadsheet that takes us all the way down to 70 times seven that we think there's only three left. That person's only got two left now. He's saying, you keep forgiving. But how can I do that? Because I am forgiveness poverty. I am empty. There's nothing left in my account. How can I give that? There's nothing remaining. And then Jesus addressed the forgiveness poverty. He told a story to Peter and to us today to help illustrate this. And the story's found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, and from verse 23, and it will appear on your screens. And it says this, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring all his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of the debtors was brought in who owed the king millions of dollars. This is obviously a new translation. There wasn't dollars in those days, but it's trying to give us a bit of a picture of the enormity of the debt. But the man, the servant, couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife and his children and everything that he owned to pay the debt. It was such a large debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him. He said these words, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. Which was wishful thinking because there was no way that he would ever be able to earn the income to pay off this debt. Then his master the king was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave him his debt. In this story, that servant is you and it's me. The king is God. 
And when we come to faith in Jesus and we repent, repentance is a, a description that says we recognize we've been making up a debt by living our lives away from God. And we've been racking up this debt, living for our pleasure, living for our wants, living for our ways. And we've been building up this debt. And it's so enormous. There comes a moment when the Spirit of God calls it in and he says, now is the time to settle this but you don't have the ability to settle it. And Jesus gave his life on the cross so that it could be settled once and for all. He paid the price for this big debt that you and I had. And his life on the cross, which we'll celebrate with communion in a moment, is the moment that he says, I settle it for you. You're now free. You're no longer a slave. You're no longer trapped by your circumstance. You are now free. All of that debt that was in our account has now been paid in full. There's nothing left to pay. There's no outstanding amount. There's no monthly terms of agreement. It has been settled in full. But the story doesn't end there. Because the story reveals that this generously forgiven servant still lived with a forgiveness poverty mindset. Verse 28. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and he demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged him for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put him in prison until the debt could be paid in full. This man who had racked up such a bill of millions and had been forgiven of it all. The account had been replenished. He was now free. There's an abundance of forgiveness that was filling his life that he could have shared with others. But instead, he thought, my account is empty and I need these few thousand dollars. The servant lived in a pre-forgiven, forgiveness poverty mindset instead of the abundance that God had set for him. I ask you a question. Are you living in forgiveness poverty or forgiveness abundance? Colossians 3 verse 13 says, forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you so you must forgive others. If it wasn't for the abundance of the Lord's forgiveness over my life, I would probably only have scraps to give. But because of his great abundance, because here is love vast as the ocean, love and kindness like a flood, where the prince of life might ransom, shed for me his precious blood, because of that abundance, that richness, that eternal prosperity that we have in the Lord, we're filled. The account's not empty. Yeah. 
It's full. Freely you have received. Freely give. So in summary, are you wearing tight-fitting clothes that make no allowances on our expectations of either ourselves or others? If so, make allowances. And secondly, are we living with a forgiveness, poverty mindset and calling in the debts of others? Or are we living in the freedom of forgiveness abundance?